So we're going to continue our journey through 2 Samuel, getting through it. We've been in it for quite some time. And um, these timeless truths in the Old Testament have just been just amazing to um, go through with Pastor Mike and some other people who have gone up here and given the word. So think about how God gets our attention sometimes. He does things that are kind of out of the ordinary. In fact, he's going to allow us to go through things that we don't want to, to get that attention pulled back to him. In the book of Deuteronomy, God warned the people that if they walked away from him, he would bring difficult times to bring them back. It says in chapter 28, it says, And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The bronze and iron standing for the harshness of God's wrath, withholding rain from the people. And then sometimes people are doing things that just aren't really safe for them. And God needs to get their attention. And he brings them back to safe ground, sometimes in difficult ways. And so as we look at this passage this morning, we want to see how God is getting the attention of the nation of Israel and King David over something that happened close to about 400 years earlier. And so the first thing we heard Sarah read was that there was a famine in verse 1. There's a famine in the days of David. And I like how the NIV translation puts it. It says, for three consecutive years. Today for us, we might call this a national disaster. And so when we think of a famine back then, the more common of those in the days were where it was a drought. So there were no crops. People were hungry. People were starving. People were perhaps dying. The food was low. There was suffering. So for ourselves, we can think about that and we can be prepared for that, but most of us, we're doing pretty good. These people didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. For us, we've probably already talked about possibly where we're having lunch today. So we're doing okay, and these people are suffering. And so for us, when I look at that first verse, we should be praising and thanking God for his abundant provision for what he has given us. Now, I can't say why David waited three years to seek the Lord. But year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. Maybe the first two years weren't so extreme. If one crop was bad, say corn, maybe they'd wait for the next year for it to get uh, to make up for the loss. Or maybe David finally got a sense that there was a cause behind it all, that there was something going on and that God was trying to get their attention. And he decided to go ask him about it. And I hope as um, followers of Jesus here today that we don't wait too long when we're going through something to go to the Lord to see what he might be wanting to get out of us. But David wisely sought the face of God, and he understood his role as the king, being a mediator for God's people. He steps in and tries to help the situation. Now, I'm not sure everyone liked to be under David's authority, but he was their king. And prayfully, we're grateful that we have a mediator in Christ Jesus for us, right? Praise God for that. So David goes to the Lord, and maybe at this point in the famine, he figured out God wants their attention. And I'm going to stop there for just a, just a moment. 
So we don't always know why God does what he does. Why there's this disaster. Why there's this trial that I'm going through or somebody else is going through or a difficulty in life. And I always come back to Job. I always think of poor Job. And he somehow pulled it together and he learned to trust God for God's reasonings on why he was having to do this. And it's good for us to learn how to do that. But the Lord responds and he gives David an answer as to why. And his answer is Saul. And I know we've all heard about Saul. He's gone. He's dead. But it's due to something that Saul had done years before. And so Saul and his people are the reason for this famine. He's dead. And this slaughter that we're going to get to in a little bit, it wasn't recorded in in 1 Samuel. Um, But David didn't hesitate that it didn't happen. And at some point during Saul's reign, he attacked and killed many Gibeonites. And so there's going to be judgment, and there's been judgment through this famine from God because of what Saul did. And this is why the nation of Israel is suffering. The whole problem came a result of Saul breaking a oath. This oath was made about 400 years before. That is the whole problem. So God is serious about his people keeping his promises. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew speaks on oaths. He says, let what you say simply be yes or simply be no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Second Corinthians, Paul says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. He expects us to keep our end of the bargain, honoring our promises, honoring our oaths. And there might be times when you regretted something that you committed to. You know you still need to honor it. At that time, it might not be such a big deal. And, but as it draws closer and closer, it starts to feel overwhelming with all the other stuff you have going on in your life. Why did I agree to this? Why, why Robert, did you agree to preach this message today in 2 Samuel, right? So, so we should be cautious on our commitments to people, right? So, but listen, God did not excuse their obligation, and he doesn't excuse ours. He did not excuse their obligation. The, the, the promise didn't end because of the passage of time, which we'll get to in a little bit. He has a high expectation for his people. So David finds out in verse 2 why this famine. And he calls the Gibeonite people to have a talk with them. The king called the Gibeonites and he spoke to them. He said, now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnants of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So God told David what the wicked act was that Saul did. And I'm sure that as soon as David heard this, his heart dropped. He knew exactly what the problem was. David knew the Old Testament. He knew what happened in the book. It was in the book of Joshua. So let's, let's just, we're not going to go there, but let me just um, briefly mention that. It says, Israel, they had taken over the promised land by defeating them in battle, and they were driving out all the local people. The Gibeonites, they came, and they pretended they were from a far-off country. Some of you are probably familiar with this. They managed to deceive Joshua and the Israelites into thinking they had come to be their servants. And they said, oh, we've heard all about your Lord, and all that he did. And so they got Joshua and the people to make a covenant with them 
so that they would not get put to death. And so they went to great lengths to do this, and it worked to an extent. Joshua and the people got fooled, and now there's this legal covenant between them, a legal treaty. And so this is what Saul broke. This is why the nation has suffered for three years. And this transpired about 400 years earlier. And so it wasn't so much that Joshua and the people of Israel got deceived. It's that they didn't seem to go to the Lord and ask him about it. They seemed to do it on their own strength, which many of us can do. Many Christians find themselves in difficult situations because we, we rush into making decisions before we go to the Lord. And Saul had gone on this campaign to kill these people. And it's not recorded except for the mention here. He broke the covenant, the oath that took place back in Joshua, and there's never been any justice to correct it. And so Saul brought calamity upon the nation of Israel, and they have been starving for three years. Think about that. And it says he did it with zeal, with zeal. Zeal's usually a good word. Here it's not. Here his zeal was to slaughter people. And if he thought for some reason intentionally, like, like I'm doing something good, it was a really, really bad action. Zeal and passion can be a really good thing as long as it's put in the right place. So when Jesus comes, when Jesus establishes his kingdom, he's going to do it with zeal. In Isaiah, it says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward and forever, zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Even our zeal can be misplaced at times. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians, As to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul had so much zeal that he was persecuting the church and Christians. And so it's good to have zeal, but we just need to be careful that it is within the boundaries of God. And so the Lord told David the reason why the famine is. Saul slaughtered the Gibeonites, but he did not give David any word on how to correct what was done. The wrong of it, 400 years before, because of the oath, the covenant that Saul broke, caused this. And so we learn a lesson that sometimes correction from God can come from, can, can sometimes take a while. Correction from a wrong can sometimes be delayed. In fact, it may come a long time after the offense. So David says to the Gibeonites, he asked them two questions in verse 3. David says, what shall I do for you? What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? So he wants to make amends with them. He wants to make it right for the wrong that Saul did. What shall I do? How can I make you people happy? What will satisfy you? David did not try to dictate. He's the king of Israel. He did not try to dictate the terms to these people. In verse 4, it says, The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver. It is not a matter of gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And David says again, What do you say that I shall do for you? 
So the Gibeonites cannot be bought off. And though Saul slaughtered their people, they didn't ask the same among the nation of Israel. There was no, they did not say, well, David, we want to slaughter a bunch of your men now. We want our own people. We want to pick them out. We have specific people, David, that we want to execute. And so this is what we want, David, in verse 5 and 6. They said to the king, the man who consumes us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, so be it, I'll give them to you. So, since Saul wanted to destroy us, we have no place in Israel. He broke the oath. We want seven of his sons. We want justice. And we want to hang them. David says yes. And it doesn't tell us in the text that God gave David any instructions on how to handle the situation. But he agrees to it. And so we think, was this an unreasonable request? Can these people be punished for the guilt of Saul? Were they innocent? Or was it possible that maybe they participated in some way? Or approved of it? Or somehow benefited from it with plunder? All it tells us in verse 1 says there's blood guilt on Saul and, and on his house. So this was not an unreasonable request in those days. It came as no surprise to King David. He knew what the, th- what the right thing was to do, to hand them over, to be hanged, no matter how hard it might be. He did not try to negotiate with them. So it's not unusual to punish the household back then over another sin in those times, and Saul was no longer around. So Saul's family is going to be held responsible for what he did, for his sin. Because of the oath that was broken. I will give them to you. And so we know in verse 7, we know the relationship, if you've been here with us, as we've gone through the book of Samuel, the relationship between Jonathan and David. And so now we go to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. In verse 7 it says, but the king, he, the king spared him, the son of Saul's, right? The son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan. So they had a relationship. And so David honored that oath because of his covenant friendship. Jonathan's son was saved from death. And he was probably the most notable living descendant of Saul at that time. And so it makes sense to put him in the front of the line. If we remember after Jonathan's death, David had taken over the throne. David took Jonathan's son into his home and he, and he cared for him. Presumably for the rest of his life, of the rest of his days. So he will be spared. Yet a special friendship. So in verse 8, as Sarah read, David takes seven descendants of Saul. We have two named sons and five unnamed, which I believe are grandsons. And one who's got the same name as Jonathan, so we don't want to get that confused. And they're all going to pay 
for what Saul did. So he hands them over to the Gibeonites in verse 9. This is an awful event. It says, and he gave them into the hands, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. So the author here, he takes time to describe these details. Killed on the mountain, hanged before the Lord. They died. They perished together. First day of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. They did exactly what they said they were going to do. Those men might have tried to protest. They may have actually been involved in the slaughter that took place. I don't know. But even if they weren't, the oath was broken by their father. And so justice was going to be served. So a big point here is that God holds the guilty accountable for sin. We are not held guilty today by the sins of our parents but we are held responsible by God for our own sins. Now Sarah and I had a good conversation about this. Sin of family can spill out, yes, into another one's life, emotionally, mentally. But if I was a bank robber and Sarah and my family had no idea that I was a bank robber, they're not going to pay for that by going to prison. I am, okay? But emotionally, I hope... Sarah is going to struggle with that because, like, wow, Robert had an issue, right? There's something wrong. I didn't know this, you know? So, but so, so it's going to roll out into another person's life, whether it's a daughter, a son, family member, a mother, or a father. My sin will flow over into somebody's life, but ultimately they are not responsible for it. Our other conversation came over a book. I did not read this book. It was written in 2001 by a gentleman named David Gardner. It was called The Last of the Hitlers. And apparently Hitler had three brothers and one being a half-brother. And they had talked among themselves about the burdens they've had in the background of their own lives. And they decided that none of them would get married and they decided that none of them would have children because they assumed any children would have a difficult, very, very difficult life. So the story is going to shift now. And I had a picture that I wanted to share, but I'm only going to put it up there for a second, because I really want you to understand things that were going on thousands of years ago. Take you out of the box a little bit. I won't leave it up there long. This is a story of a woman named Rizpah. Her name means hot or glowing stone, maybe indicating her beauty. She was one of King Saul's concubines. It says, And Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself over the rock from the beginning of harvest until the rain fell upon them. From the heavens, and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beast of the field by night. She is one of the most forgotten 
and tragic women in the Bible. And I want to be, I want to be sensitive here to others. But this mother is grieving over her sons. This mother has courage. This mother has love. And this mother has a lot of pain. And the result of what Saul did caused her two sons to be taken from her and publicly executed. There was no privacy back then like we have today. This hanging was for all to see. And so the guarding of these bodies that this woman did was such an exceptional act of love and respect for the dead. We go all the way back to the death of Saul just for a moment. She's mentioned only twice in the Bible, in this chapter and in chapter 3. She's Saul's concubine, his widow. She was the subject of a sexual nature. There was an accusation that a name that we're all familiar with, named Abner, had gone into her. That accusation was made by another name we're familiar with, one of Saul's sons named Ishbosheth. And so now here is she is in this part of the text where her sons just get slaughtered in a sanctious, sanctioned execution. And then all of a sudden, she's just on the scene. Perhaps she was a witness to the hanging also. But this violent act took place quickly, and it kind of shifts to her mourning and her protecting these men something she might not have been able to do for herself in those days as a widow. And it says she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. She did what she could, didn't she? She stood watch over these bodies of her sons to protect them from getting ripped apart. Day and night, it says. She could not stop King David from handing them over. He was going to honor the oath. He didn't even try to negotiate this. Nor could she stop the Gibeonites from hanging them. So she did what she could. And it says she was out there beginning of harvest till the rain came. Now, I just want you to get a load of this, the magnitude of this. She was out there between five to six months. Let that sink in. Standing watch over decaying bodies, trying to protect them from scavengers, wild beasts, vultures. The death of her two sons did not severe family tie. If any of you today understand her pain, you understand why she did what she did. She was determined to do this, to keep predators away. And the scripture doesn't tell us that she just did this for her two only. So we can assume that she did this for all of them. And so before we get to these last few verses, I just want to make a, a little point here about our children and our grandchildren. There's so much pressure for them today, our kids. And so spiritually... We got to go to bat for them, protect them, intercession, intercession for them, praying for them. Kids today face vultures. 
Kids today face predators of all kinds, and they need to be guarded. I won't go into specifics, but I think we get the point. We might not always be able to be there for them physically, but we can certainly try to shoo off those vultures that are coming at them. And so we guard them by introducing them to the one true God. And we guard them by demonstrating our own faith. Parents and grandparents, we have to battle for souls of children today. And again, this woman might have been out there for several months. This is what most scholars actually believe. Five to six months. Until the rainy season came. And we see that regardless of the months that she was there, she just didn't start out fast and furious and then fizzle away. She stayed the course. She was determined to do this. She was diligent and she was persistent. And the last point today is I want to make is we must support those who have experienced losses. No one knows another's sorrow. The book of Proverbs says each heart knows its own bitterness and no one else can share its joy. And sometimes when there's somebody grieving that we know, we don't always know what to say. And that's okay. It's just letting people know that you're available for them and that you care enough for them, right? And I mean, Job's friends had the right idea. They really, really did. But actually, things were better when they weren't speaking to him, when they just said nothing. And sometimes that's okay, just to know that somebody cares. So Rizba was mourning, and it's okay to do that. In fact, I think it's important to do that. There's too many times that people get the idea that they shouldn't show any sadness or any mourning because they're a Christian and it shows a lack of faith or strength. In the book of Acts, at Stephen's burial, it says, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply. I have a wonderful lady that I see twice a week at one of the facilities I go to. She's lost both her sons, one of them just recently. Her faith and strength that I've seen has just been amazing to see and hear, and it's so encouraging to me as I've watched her go through this. And I actually think that she has become closer to God through it all. And so this news of what Rizpah is doing or has done reaches King David finally in verse 11. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, verse 12, David went and took the bones of Saul and the men of his son Jonathan and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabash Galid, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshon, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul and Gibeah. So he takes action. David takes action. And he goes and gets these bones and he gathers them. John, uh, David has the power to do this. So when we remember, go back to, to, to 1 Samuel in your head if you can, when David first learned about, about Saul's death when he was in Ziglag, he and his son, Saul, Saul and his sons had been killed in, by the Philistines in just this brutal battle. And Saul's head had been cut off and somehow his body and his son's been fastened to a wall. These brave men... They came and stole those bodies, and they burned and buried them. 
This is where David went, and this is what he gathered up along with the seven men who were hanged. And he gave them a public burial in verse 14. Together with the remains of Saul and Jonathan, he displays some decency here and respect in doing this. And he places them in the family tomb. It says they buried the bones of Saul, his son Jonathan, in the land of Benjamin, in the tomb of Kish, his father. He finally displayed some decency. Justice was completed. The hanging of seven men. Due to an oath. Due to a covenant that had been broken. And this pretty much brings the closer Close to, close to the, uh, closure to the end of Saul. We've heard so much about him over these past months and a year, and, and this pretty much is the end of it. Justice was completed. The last, the last part of 14, God responds to the plea. The famine ends. The rain comes after three years. Seven men being hanged. Three things to end with. Sometimes we can be in a famine. And Jesus is the only one who can pull us out of it. Spiritually. God responded to the plea of the land. Justice was done. And rain came. Jesus for us is our bread of life. And through faith in him, we should not have to be hungry spiritually. And so if we feel like we're in a desert sometimes, no food, we need something that will sustain us. It's not junk food. Our souls need to be fed with him. And I know it's hard because I know that I go there. But if we are in a famine and we're wondering how to get out of it, what I realized for me is that maybe Jesus was trying to get my attention. And he was at one point. And John 8.35 says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And secondly, I think it's important to look at this passage and to see that as Christians today, that we need to honor our commitments. We need to honor our promises, honor our oaths. As a result of Saul breaking this, Israel faced a, a three-year drought. So breaking that was a serious matter, and it's the same for us, especially in the eyes of God. In our daily dealing with people, we need to think about the promises that we make. We don't want to make promises that we can't keep, because those broken promises can hurt people. They can really hurt people. We have to think about that. And lastly, I, better go I have to go back, I'm sorry, to Rizpah. Because I tried to get away from her for a whole week. I said, no, don't go there. I've got to get away from her. There's got to be something else. The Lord kept taking me back to this mother. I tried to pull myself away. She teaches us things. She really does. She shows us the love for our children. Think about the love God has for us, right? In 1 John, it says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. 
Rizpah teaches us that it's okay not to be okay. So we live in a highly photoshopped world at times. And people want to present the best versions of themselves. And oftentimes it's far from what's really going on within them. Rizpah did not live in that world. She did not live in that world. She simply grieved, mourned, protected those men, and it was okay. She did what she could. So as she stood guard over these seven bodies, her behavior bore witness. And King David heard, and he decided to do something about it, to get these people a proper burial. There's also a Jewish custom of guarding the dead between the time of death and the time of burial. But she was out there protecting them from the birds and wild beasts. And it seemed like David just kind of moved on. He just moved on. Hanging's done, done. Getting on with life. And I think because of her perseverance, somebody saw it and brought that to King David's attention. This woman did what she could. What she could. And lastly, she represents many, many, many mothers. Many mothers. And go all the way back to King Herod. I think you get that. Or back to King Herod. I think of the case of Emmett Till in 1955. I'm not going to read it or talk about it, but if you want to know, you could look it up. About the mother and her boy, Emmett Till. And many other mothers. So whether these men were, were, were directly involved or not, ultimately Saul was the king and Saul was calling the shots and they paid for his sin by being hanged. So as I was finishing this Saturday or Friday night, I can't remember, Rizpah pointed me to the cross. This woman pointed me, she took me directly to the cross. You know what I saw there? I saw another mother grieving. I saw the mother of Jesus with John at the cross, grieving, watching her son be beaten and crucified. The mother of our Savior. Rizpah's sons and the others took Saul's sin upon them, and they were hanged. Mary watches her son take her sin, my sin, your sin, the whole world's sin upon himself so we might live. She had to let her sons go. God the Father did not let us go. The good news is that we know, right? Jesus didn't stay dead, that he rose three days later like he said he would. God the Father did not let us go. And may we always, always look to the cross when we're going through dark times. And remember him and remember his mother. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word, for your presence with us. Thank you for the things that you show us, especially the things in this chapter. As we leave here today, will you show us what part of our lives might be in a spiritual famine and guide us in our commitments to others and help us to protect our children, our grandchildren. And as we look to the cross and see Jesus' mother there 
Help us to be there for those who are grieving. And Lord, help us to point others to you. Amen.